Hey, good morning, everyone. All right, Ephesians 1 is where I'd like you to turn this morning. Uh, Ephesians 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23. <clears throat> I'm going to read this text for you. Uh, I'm just going to make this comment. If, if you reach into the beginning of chapter 1 of Ephesians, you'll get an understanding and knowledge of the rich salvation that God plans, promises, and secures for his children. Uh, verse 15 and following is Paul's prayer for those who have been secured by the powerful sovereign grace of God. Okay, so let's begin reading in uh, chapter 1, verse 15 of Ephesians. Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. By the way, that is the aim of all that God reveals, is so that we would know Christ whom to know is life eternal. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. I love that. All things and all time. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Father, as we read your word, we are stunned and amazed. Uh, we see truths that we cannot grasp by human understanding, by mere intellectual study. And so this morning, Father, we covet the work of your spirit in our hearts so that we would gain an understanding of the truths that are communicated in this text, so that we will know how to think rightly in our lives, and in that thinking rightly may honor and glorify you in the way that we should. Father, forgive us for the areas in which we fall short in this regard, and through your word and by the Spirit today, help us to apprehend truth that will change us. We pray for these blessings in the glorious name of our risen Savior, who was placed above all things, seated at your right hand. In his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Raising three young boys that were all born within 23 months, my dad often experienced an understandable frustration. He would often uh, quip at us, what were you thinking? The answer often was, I wasn't. <laughs> I think of uh, a couple examples of not thinking. Time we cut down our neighbor's trees in his front yard to get straight wood for our forts in the woods. The time I unexplainably got my finger stuck under the chain of the riding sprocket on my Stingray bicycle. What was I thinking? The time I broke the frame on my dad's work truck while off-roading. Didn't make him happy. And probably the 
the loudest expression. My dad, he, he wasn't a man that yelled at us, but you could feel it. Say it, <laughs> say it that way. Uh, one time I left my motor, we were out riding our motorcycles in the snow. We thought that was a good idea. And I left my motorcycle outside of the garage door where my dad's plow truck was parked, inside, so that he could, you know, at two or three in the morning, safely exit the house. All I heard was a thunder. I didn't know it thundered in the wintertime, but I found out it could. In frustration, he would say, what were you thinking? We, often as Christians, I wonder what we're thinking. This, in this text, Paul prays that believers would learn to think correctly about their relationship with God in a way that would directly affect their daily life and practice. Thinking affects behavior. It affects disposition. It affects our attitude. What you focus on matters. In fact, I would argue that we live in an age that is plagued with too much to think about, with distractions. I've been feeling that in my personal life lately. Too many things to try to focus on to maintain my focus on the things that really matter. In today's text, Paul prays. A prayer for the believers in Ephesians, a prayer for correct thinking. Because how you think and how you believe is crucial. What you believe affects your identity and your behavior. The essential you, who you are at the very core of your being, is affected and shaped by what you allow to run through your mind and by what you choose to meditate on. Now, as Paul starts out in verse 15, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all God's people... So what's driving Paul in prayer here? Here's what's driving Paul. He has heard about the work of God in the lives of the believers in the church in Ephesus. God has been doing something that is manifesting itself in faith. They are deeply trusting God. They knew that he had saved them and they knew that he would uphold them. You go back and read through the first half of this chapter and you will gain a clear conviction that God, if you have trusted Christ, is is for you. And they knew that. And it, the result was that they were trusting him more and more and it was affecting their daily life. Here was the other evidence of it. Their faith and their love for all the saints. Their faith and trust in God was freeing them from concerns and allowing them to begin to practice the most difficult Christian discipline and yet the richest Christian discipline, which is love of others. It is the purest evidence that conversion has taken place. And so as Paul looks at these people, he sees believing and he sees loving for him that is concrete evidence of conversion and reason to pray that the work that God had begun in them would be brought to completion until the day of Christ. And so for this, he earnestly prays. Now, as you move on to verse 17, Paul becomes specific in what he's asking for. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, all-powerful Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. James, I was amazed at the text you quoted from this morning. Uh, This work of God making his truth known to us as believers. 
Paul specifically and passionately requests for these maturing believers that they would progress and grow in knowing Christ better, that they would grasp the the broader, far-reaching entailments of their relationship with Christ. They would know what it means to be bound up in a relationship with Christ. And Paul fascinatingly understands that this Wisdom and revelation, this insight to what God is seeking to reveal and do in our lives is coming only by the Spirit and is to be normative for the experience of God's children. We should be listening and waiting and longing to hear from God as we study His truth, as we sing songs of praise, that He will give us insight and revelation into what He wants us to know for that day and for our lives and for our church. It's powerful to me when I read through this. Study and intellect, education unaided is never enough. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11, Paul makes this observation. He says, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has ever thought of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us. That is the normative experience of believers. He is revealing it to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things. He is aware of everything. Even the deep things of God. And He plums those depths. And He mines out truths and impresses them into our lives by the Word and by His work. So that we begin to know and to understand Christ in a way that is transformational. That's what Paul wants them to have. Those that love and trust Christ... He's praying that they would experience a move forward or progress, sanctification. And that sanctification and that progress is tied to specifically what they know about Christ as the Spirit begins to make it clear to them. The key of this text, I believe, is that you can't know God without the help of the Holy Spirit. And only the Holy Spirit can clarify and illuminate this truth for you. It is the aim of his anointing work as he comes into our lives according to 1 John 2, 27. He teaches you about all things. He reveals the thoughts of God, makes scripture clear to us, gives this idea of revelation to us so that we know as we read the word of God and sing the truth of God that we get those moments when we understand something that we knew but he brings it into the realm of application and personal experience. That's what Paul wants for these believers. The aim of this prayer, he says, is so that you may know. So his aim is that as God is working and manifesting himself and making himself known amongst believers, the aim is that you would know. And, and I want to I clarify this word. There's there, in the original language, there are ways to express knowing, and there are intensive or deeper ways of knowing. The word used here is a, 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 a deeper or more intensive knowing of Christ and God. Okay, And that knowing is coming by the Spirit. So let me use this illustration. Okay, I know President Bush. I know, I'll say it this way, I know about President Bush. I know that he was the president of the United States. I know uh, that he lives in the state of Texas. I know that he was in the military. I know there are a number of things that I could list. But if you said to me, do you know President Bush? My answer would have to be no. I know about him. Here's what Paul wants for believers. 
He wants us to move from knowing about God to knowing God. Or maybe you can say it this way. He wants us to move from knowing intellectual facts about God to laying hold in our hearts of truth about God. And you're going to see how this moves in this text. In verse 18, he says this. I pray that the eyes of your heart, it's a fascinating statement, right? The eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that, so here's the, here's the aim of Paul's prayer. I want, I want the light to go on inside. I want that illuminating work of the Spirit about the truth of God to, to fire off inside of your heart in order that you may know three very practical and important truths. He prays that God will give insight in such a way that we as believers may more fully know, grasp, and understand the spiritual blessings that they know but need to, and I'm going to use this word this morning, to treasure. Folks, here's the truth. You can study theology. You can study statements about God and know that they are accurate statements about God. But that is not what Paul is praying for here, a mere intellectual nod to the fact that God is all-powerful or that God is loving or that God gives hope. He's not looking for an intellectual assent. He's looking for believers to be people that treasure these truths about God. This is how we make progress in our Christian experience. First, we come to know Christ in a distant sort of way. Now Paul is praying that they would come to know him in a deeper, intimate, personal, and expanding way as the Spirit would begin to make Jesus clear to them. Knowing by the Spirit aims to change you. In John 14, 26, uh, John said, He will teach you about Christ and shape Christ in you. It is wisdom that affects our daily life. It builds faith, it prompts obedience, and love in our lives. Paul encourages a greater sensitivity to this work of the Spirit. So here's the question I would ask you this morning as we move into three thoughts that Paul wants to impress upon their minds and upon their hearts. Am I a listening believer? Paul here speaks of this work of the Spirit as normative and essential to a robust personal walk with God. But I must cultivate a practice of listening as I sing to say, God, show me truth about yourself. As I read his word, God, illuminate this text that I see intellectually the words, help me to own it and treasure it in my heart. Folks, the thing that will change your life is coming to know Christ in such a way that he becomes to you the most precious thing. And I I can say this, I can say I love Christ, but there are days that I can't say that I love Christ more than I love anything. I mean, I can say it, but for that treasuring above all things to be true requires an active and powerful and freeing work of the Spirit. And so what Paul then says as he goes into verse 18 is, he says, I pray that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened in order that they may know. And then he's going to give three biblical truths or three foundational truths for our life that I think taken in an aggregate, taken together, summarize the essence of what it is to know God and to know his son, Jesus Christ. So let's work our way through these three ways of thinking that Paul aims to impress upon their minds and is asking God to enlighten them too. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, that internal seeing, 
treasuring may be enlightened in order that you may know that is to own personally and intimately. First of all, he talks about the hope to which he has called you. And in my notes, I'm calling this a hope that is sweet. Paul wants them to savor this. There are certain times that people give me something to eat, and it's just, it's delightful. My wife has found this uh, honey-flavored yogurt, okay? Now, as a kid, my aunt used to make this cheesecake that I loved, and she's now 90-plus years old. She's not making her cheesecakes anymore, and I, I miss that. My wife brought home this yogurt, Yobani, Shabani yogurt. I started eating this stuff, and I was like, it, it brought back memories, a sense of something that was beautiful that I wanted to savor, so she stopped buying it. <laughs> I couldn't stop. I would sit down and eat a pint of that like it was like nothing because I, 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 I longed for it, loved it. <laughs> what Paul is saying here is God has called you to a hope that is sweet, a hope that if you begin to think about it and treasure it, it will begin to transform your daily experience. It will alter your behavior. Hope is a fickle word in the world that I live in. I was talking to a friend this morning in the back who's, actually I'm looking back and I'm seeing Tim also. Uh, Death comes and breaks hope, challenges hope. Sickness comes. And it challenges our hope. Sometimes the word hope is used in frivolous ways. People say, well, one day I I hope I win the lottery. I hope I will have enough to retire. I hope I remember our appointment. I say that to people at times recently. We live in a world that disappoints on a perpetual basis and where hope is deferred. And Proverbs says that when hope is deferred, it makes the heart sick. And what God wants and what Paul's praying that God would give to his people is is a firm sense, a firm knowledge, an intimate knowledge of the hope to which he has called you, which I believe moves in two directions. I believe it refers back to the beginning of this chapter, the hope of salvation where God has lavished his love on us through Christ in a redeeming way so that we are ultimately sealed in him by the Holy Spirit, the Trinity working on on our behalf so that we would know that we are firm with God, that we can trust him, that we can hope in him. The hope of which God calls you to is the source of great joy. We are adopted. We are redeemed. We are sealed. And this hope in our salvation, our redemption, yields a strong confidence. It should change us. It should affect how we face every day. But also our hope includes the glories of life with God forever. And I think Paul is moving in two ways here. That truth that's in chapter one, and then everything that we have to look forward to as a result of that truth. And it's here that I'd like to put our focus. Our hope includes the glories of life with God forever. We are promised here that we will share in his glory. But I have to say that life tests this assertion. We are people of hope, but sometimes our hope shakes. Sometimes our confidence, and I think that may be a better word in this text, our confidence in God is weakened by the experiences of life. I'm watching on the news, the hurricane down in Texas. Uh, missiles launched from North Korea. I looked at this stuff on Friday. Another one was Wall Street banks worry about financial stability. You start reading that stuff and meditating on it, it'll destroy your confidence. We live in a world that does that. 
I think when I think about that, I think about the Apostle Paul. I think about Paul's ability to say, living is service for Christ and dying is gain. And I say to myself, God, I want to be there. I want to be there where Paul could say, hey, it seems that God in some way is saying to Paul, you can live or you can die. You can live and serve others. You can die and come and be with me. And Paul's kind of like, I need a second to think about that. I'm not there. In our, in our recent experience in our family with my mom and the diagnosis of cancer, uh, a woman who has had relatively great health. She had breast cancer. God delivered her from that. Uh, she has an awesome life, enjoys 26 grandkids and great-grands in combination. Many of them live in the neighborhood. She loves and looks forward to influencing them, teaching them, encouraging them, feeding them, praising them. She has a lot to look forward to, even at 82 years old. Enter a urinary tract infection that leads to a diagnosis of bladder cancer and now a regiment of chemo. And I apologize that I did not send out that email this week to, to let you know. I promised I would do that. And I'm just an illustration that hope in me is a false hope. Looking in the face of mortality. Looking in the face of the fact that I am not forever. Not my human existence. It's not forever. And, and, and so the, the struggling in my mind has been, how do I lay hold of and treasure the hope that he's called me to in such a way that it begins to affect my response to cancer diagnosis or to a financial downturn or to the loss of a job has happened for someone in our church recently? How does that hope so strongly inform me and so greatly secure me that I'm not torn apart? And this is my concern on my mom's behalf. I, I, I want her to know that hope in a way that she's okay with what God has for her. And I'm not saying if I was in her shoes that I would be there, but that's what I'm praying for. I sent that to her yesterday. I'm praying this text for you. That the riches of heaven would become so incredibly powerful that you with David could say Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at right hand, pleasures that last forever. Folks, everything in this life is temporary. And if you set your hope on it, one day it will be frustrated and disappointed. Hope in God is not that way. When I was a kid, we sang a song. This world is not my home. We're just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't be at home in this world anymore. Now, I sang that, but I cannot tell you that that's where I am. I want to be there. But it's not where I am. And Paul's saying... Father, I pray that they will know, that they will own, that they will comprehend by the Spirit the fullness of the hope that you've called them to in such a way that it causes them to say with the Apostle Paul, going or staying, I'm good with both. I'm fine. Because that hope is so glorious and treasurable. This past week, we had that uh, day of the eclipse. I forget if that was Monday or Tuesday. 
I was out in front of uh, Home Depot in uh, Phillipsburg at the, at the moment when it was happening, and there was a group of about 10 or 12 people standing off to the one side of the contractor's area, and there were, they had a pair of those glasses. I, I, I'm, like in that kind of setting, I'm pretty comfortable to walk up and kind of wander in with the hope, right? This, can I borrow your, <laughs> your glasses? I mean, this only happens once in every 100 years, and you should think about me, <laughs> okay? So... He gave them to me, and I, I had the privilege of, for 30 seconds or so, watching this phenomenon of eclipse. Here's the amazing thing. The sun is 800,000 miles in diameter. Okay? 800,000 miles. The moon is 2,156 miles in diameter. I watched on TV as it, that little moon comparatively, 400 times smaller than the sun, wiped it out. And I thought to myself, how often do the little moons in life shield us from and hide the glory of Christ? How quickly the little things when I see God for who he is, the little things in comparison hide the glory of Christ and allow me to live in an unchristian way in my thinking because I am clinging too hard to the temporal pleasures of this life. Paul says, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you. Take hold of this gigantic hope. Rest in it. Christian hope is the opposite of despair. Christian hope breathes a massive optimism, which is rare in our day of bad news and global concerns. But we as believers need to realize my hope is not here. My hope is in the Lord. I would love to be so invested in God-exalting hope that daily struggles would not take me down. But I cannot tell you I'm there. And Paul knew for this church, in spite of the love and the, and the faith that they had, the trust that they had in God, he prayed that it would increase. And it would increase if they began to meditate on and think about, this world is not my home. And I am, in the words of, uh, of James, my life is a vapor. I'm just passing through. I was not meant to be here forever. And yet sometimes we cling in such a way because we love the life that we sometimes have. One writer said it this way. He said, think at the final press conference of the universe. Think on the fact that at the final press conference of the universe, we will stand with Christ in his victory and treasure this confidence-inducing promise, the hope to which he has called you. The second thought that Paul talks about is the strong, and I, I, I... just in my, in my thinking as I studied through this, started to think about the love of God not only as a strong affection, but it is a fierce affection. It is something that God takes seriously, the protection and the, the love and the care for his children. Now, at one level, this affection is extremely uh, powerful. And moving. And the Apostle Paul, I believe in this text, wants us to know something very, very simple. And that is this. God cares about you. Okay, listen to the way he says it. He says, I want you to know the riches 
of his glorious inheritance. What do the next words say? In the saints. So the first passage talks about our inheritance in God. This text flips it around and talks about God's inheritance in us. You got to think about that. Think about that from the perspective that you were selected by God according to the first part of this chapter. I think the aim of Paul in this text is that we would see that we are precious to God, not because of irresistible qualities in us, not because of unusual gifting, not because of outstanding character. The truth is this, he loves sinners. Never get over this. I am no prize, I know that. Truth is that we are all sinners that only a merciful and holy God through Christ could love. And by the precious blood of his son, we can be clean and made holy ones. So transformed and so changed that God in heaven longs for our coming into his presence. I think that is beautiful. I think that is a truth that if we would meditate on it, we'll begin to change our hearts. The God who owns it all counts you individually as precious. As the sheep of his pasture, he, the good shepherd, sends his son. The good shepherd lays down his life for the benefit of the sheep. Why? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Zephaniah 3.17 says it this way, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. Think about this. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. What I need is not greater self-esteem and self-appreciation and self-realization. What I need is a clear, manifest view of God who loves me and desires to transform my life. I need to know that I am significant to God, that I matter to God. And that is the aim, I believe, of what Paul says in this text. Knowing that someone cares is powerful. In the incident that I told you about, my uh, silly bike incident, I, I found two responses to that event. One was amusement. That was my two older brothers. And in my dad, I I found uh, what I would call disbelief, but he cared. And when that happened, he was the the, the first word out of my mouth was, Dad, because I knew that he would move in my direction for my rescue. That's the fierce affection of a father for their child manifested and known by the child, and it affects automatically what? Behavior and response. This fierce affection of God should transform us. When I I think about this love of God expressed towards us, I I, I think about mm, our relationship with our daughters between my wife and I. I think about saying to them when they were teenagers, uh, look, uh, you're having those talks, you're trying to give them guidance and direction in life, and for whatever reason, I decided to tell them something that I believe is true in my heart, that no matter what you do, we will always 
love you and be there for you. We won't support your bad behavior. We won't sponsor it. We won't fund it. But we will be there for you. Essentially, to say there is nothing you can do that will cause us to not love you. It may cause us to not like you. But it will not allow us to not love you. Now, you could say, well, that's kind of dumb. I do dumb things. But think about this. Paul put it this way. He said the love of Christ that we experience constrains us. It changes behavior. It affects how you live. And that love expressed, I think, is the strongest attraction. You know what Paul wants them to know? They want to know that God's affection towards them is fierce, unrelenting, never lets go, as we sang this morning. That is powerful truth for someone that falls. That is powerful truth for someone that is tempted. That is powerful truth for someone who is struggling. God loves you. Even when you doubt his affection for you, it does not annihilate or eliminate his affection. It alters our daily life as we treasure and meditate on this level of affection. It settles the heart of God's child when we know he treasures and loves us. It informs our daily life. It kills sin. It drives loyalty when we understand that God, we, God can't wait for you to be with him. Meditate on these things. Hope and affection, however, are great. And no matter how great they are, if God is unable to keep his promises of hope, my confidence is misplaced. If God has deep affections, but is unable, uh, unable to actually care for me, the promises may be emotionally soothing, but in truth they are anemic and empty. They change nothing. And so that's why I believe Paul wants them to know not only that they have great hope in Christ, that he has deep and fierce affection for them. He also wants them to know the incomparably great power of God. Knowing that someone is loving, affectionate, and capable is a powerful combination. I, I have often wrestled with this truth. I, we have an, an app on our phones called Find My Friends. My friends are my father-in-law. My three daughters, and I think, I think that's it right now. I don't think my wife is allowing us to track her location yet. But there are times I'll wake up and think about our oldest daughter who works in McCungee, Pennsylvania, Kids Peace. And sometimes she's going in at 10 and leaving work at 2 or 3 in the morning. Okay? That doesn't work for me. At the emotional level, I trust my daughter implicitly. I have confidence in God's protection of her, but I... I will tell you that she's at our house temporarily because she, she's searching around on job ideas and things. And if I wake up, the first thing I do is I get out of bed and go see if her car is there. If I see her car there, all is well and I can go back to sleep. But if it's 2.33 in the morning like it was the other week, what do I do? I go to find my friends. And I think to myself, as if you could do anything at all to help. And immediately I am in the, in, the, in the midst of my deep affection and concern and wanting to give hope and confidence to my daughter. I find that I am utterly unable to do so. 
can't change anything. Especially when I look at the ones that are in Houston, Texas, and Kansas City, Kansas. I don't even know why I look. Because <laughs> they have to say, what are you doing there? Where are you? This power of God that Paul wants them to know is described in words that are very powerful in this text. I want you to see how he says this. He says, I want you to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And what does Paul do in this text? He stacks up three synonyms and then he adds a verb to say that this all-surpassing power of God is bent in your direction, but it is clearly manifested through the resurrection of Christ. So this power is incomparable, it is unexplainable in human words, but it is best illustrated in an event that is in itself miraculous. That miraculous power that is proven in the resurrection of Christ is the power that he wants us to lay hold of and treasure deeply in our hearts in a way that changes us. See, that's why the accounts of the resurrection are kept and preserved in Scripture. We're to go to them and to understand by the Spirit how those truths should affect daily life. There is nothing impossible for God. Folks, do you realize this? When Jesus talked about his resurrection, the disciples weren't like, good, awesome, can't wait to see that. They were in utter disbelief. That was the only response he got. And after his death, they weren't saying, three days, he should be up. They were despairing. Their hope was destroyed. Their thoughts of his affection annihilated because he had made promises that he couldn't keep. But the power that raised him from the dead, when it was seen, and when it was understood, and Christ graciously gave them the illustration of that power, the example of that power, by showing them, touch my hands and my side. Thomas is like, I'm good. I'm good. I see you. I'm good. Folks, that's what God wants us to see his power in the resurrection of Christ and understand that that power is bent in our direction by the sovereign hand of God. And he wants that to strengthen you in the flood and in the storm. I can only know it in a small way, but it is beyond what I know. It's beyond what I understand. And it is meant to captivate us and to cry out to the one who is affectionate towards you, the one who promises great things for you, and the one who is capable to do good for you. It's meant to change your thinking, to change your orientation. Paul would ask, do you see it? Do you know that God is capable? Does that knowing of God's capacity, that incomparable power induce faith and trust in your heart are you asking god to do that are you allowing the spirit to give you that stronger gift of faith so that you can lay hold of and apprehend and believe the things that he has for you in a way that begins to change your life i wonder this morning as we conclude if you would think this morning who can i begin to pray this for because we have a rich inheritance we have a fierce affection from god and we have incomparably great power from God. I would also ask you this morning, this simple question, 
Are you in your current circumstance treasuring these anchoring truths? Strong enough in your life. Because the truth is this, soon enough the storms of life will test each of us. It's inevitable. And out of love, I think God in the midst of the circumstances says to us, what are you thinking? What are you focusing on? Where are you looking? What are you trusting? Paul would pray, help them by the Spirit to know and treasure in fresh ways this hope that is so sweet, this love that is so fierce, this power that is unlimited. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Ask the Holy Spirit to write these truths on your heart in such a way that it begins to change you. Ask you to bring such spirit-wrought wisdom, insight, and clarity that you begin to cherish and treasure to lay up in your heart these truths so that when life shakes you, you think Godward-centered promises. The result of this kind of thinking is that no fear is too great, no guilt so deep, no regret so heavy, no bondage so strong, no addiction so long-lived that the power of God that raised Christ from the dead cannot deliver from, relieve, and forgive. Nothing. Nothing. He is mighty to save. I wonder this morning if there is a need for prayer in your heart for someone to pray over you. To say, God... I need to know these truths. This morning as we sing, perhaps you want to come up to the front to one of the pastors and say, hey, I just want you to pray for me. I want God to cement these truths in my mind. I want these anchoring points that Paul prayed earnestly for the believers in Ephesus to be the truth that begins to stabilize the wobbliness of my life. I want to see that begin to fade. I want to see a, a true and straight track begin to emerge in my life. We have a God who is mighty. We have a God who is loving. We have a God who gives hope. And Paul says, let these truths go down like an anchor in your soul. Think of another song that I sung as a kid. We sang a song that was called, Will Your Anchor Hold in the Storms of Life? And the answer to that question is this. It depends what your anchor is. And I would suggest to you this morning that God's hope his love and his power are three great anchors that you ought to throw into the teeming sea of life and let it begin to stabilize your vessel for his glory. So the people will look and see faith and trust emerging that causes them to say, I want to know that in my life. Father, will you help us by the Spirit to know so that we treasure powerful and glorious truths that will, at the end of the day, transform us into the clear image of your Son. So that a watching world will see that there is hope in Christ because it is illustrated not only through his resurrection, but in the work that he is doing in our lives. Lord, as we move forward as a church family, we want to be a, a model of what God wants because when we are that, it will be attractive to the world around us. And God, we want to be a magnet that pulls people and draws people to your glory and grace in your son, Jesus Christ.
I pray, Father, if there was someone here this morning who has wrestled with wondering if they could be forgiven, they could experience victory in their lives over uh, some battle, some bondage, someone who's wondering if they could truly be redeemed by the grace of God because they think their sin too great. God, help them to know today that your love is greater still as manifested in the shed blood of Christ who is mighty to save. Cement these truths in our hearts. As we sing our closing song, we pray for the glory of Christ and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together.